Cut the Crest presents The Screening Room And welcome back to The Screening Room. Gosh, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Something like two, two and a half years? Uh, yeah, really, really sorry for the hiatus. Um, but uh, yeah, COVID didn't get me. Uh, I managed to survive, although I did get a lot of uh, a lot of people that we knew. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's been a busy uh, couple of years. I've been busy making artwork uh, for various, you know, trading card companies and things like that. Um, uh, working on various film projects here and there in different capacities, but. Um, yeah, before I sort of stop with the screen room, um, I had recorded a series of interviews with, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming up, actually. So there are a bunch of interviews um, with friends about their favorite fandoms. Uh, I would t- tentatively title that series Fancast, and no, it doesn't talk about fans casting different actors in their favorite films and things like that. Uh, so maybe I'll maybe I'll rework that title. Um, I had recorded a best of 2020, uh, believe it or not. Um, so I'm going to release that uh, and best of 2021 and uh, 22 as well uh, as a sort of look back uh, series. So look out for those. Um, I've also recorded some interviews with really interesting people. Um, one of which was uh, a writer. She's known as Saf- she's called Saffron Maeve. And she's a writer for the, I don't know if you're familiar with the film magazine, uh, Little White Lies. So she's a contributing writer and she'd written a piece um, around 2020, I suppose, uh, called We Have to Talk About Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, and it it gets into some of the um, the representation issues of Indian people in that film and, and sort of Hinduism and Indian culture. So that, that was a really interesting uh, chat. And I think that'll probably come out around the time that Dial of Destiny is out. So yeah, look out for that one too. Um, But so I'm going to kick off the new series with a raw recording that I made uh, from Star Wars Celebration, uh, which is the big Star Wars convention, if you're unfamiliar, uh, that happened about two weekends ago. Um, The recording is from the only panel, actually, that I attended, uh, and it was hosted by Doug Chang who at the moment is the Vice President and Executive Creative Director of Lucasfilm, uh, which is actually, he's come some ways actually since the late 90s, uh, early to mid noughties, uh, as a, where he was the concept artist. Um, I can't remember his exact job title, but yeah, he, his background is sort of conceptual art and things like that. But uh, he talks about what it takes to be a conceptual artist, the level you should be working at, what uh, people who are looking to get into that uh, side of the business uh, should be doing um, and what's important, what's not important. But yeah, it's a really fascinating, uh, a really fascinating panel. Um, pretty loose and uh, fluid in the way he conducted it. So a lot of it is kind of QA, Q&A based. So yeah, um, it's about an hour. I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Even if you're not really, you know, in the creative arts now, I think you should, you, there, there's probably something in there that you'll find of interest. So, um, yeah, without much further ado, uh, here it is. I'll kind of give you a little insight in terms of you know, what it takes to be a film designer today. And we have a special surprise guest 
Jama, <laughs> who's one of our art department uh, person. So I, I grabbed him because he was literally walking out there. So. <laughs> a special surprise. And what's really great is that you know he's been following the Mandalorian and looking at the art of the end. A lot of them are Jamas as well. So please feel free to kind of take advantage of our you know, being here to ask us as much as you want. And I think it's really great because you know sometimes in a lot of these presentations, you know time kind of runs out. And I feel like I don't get a chance to really you know hear or answer questions that is really relevant to you guys. So that's why I want to try this. You know, to really hear from you guys what you want. And so I'll, I'll do a little intro, and then literally I'm just going to walk up and down, raise your hand, and we'll just have a conversation. Sound good? Let's start. Okay. So basically, um, so part of the agenda for today, I know we have an hour, so it's going to go fast, but I do want to talk about sort of what the Lucasfilm Art Department is and what the role. Uh, what the role is that we play in terms of film design. And it's very unique, and I'm only going to speak really about sort of uh, from the Lucasfilm perspective. So in some ways, it translates to other franchises like Marvel and stuff, but it's not. So this is very specific to this, so keep that in mind. When I give you sort of our workflow and our process, just, just know that it's not going to apply to across the industry. Um, and one of the things that kind of makes the Lucasfilm art department unique is that in my role, I kind of oversee the entire design process. And that's unusual in the sense that as a production designer for our films, um, I oversee not only our sets and vehicles, but also creature effects, hair and makeup, and you know, props and visual effects. So it kind of encompasses the whole thing. And that's what's really great about it is that the role that we have, you know, we're really not defining them with very specific boundaries anymore. And so we're taking sort of the film workflow and breaking down all the, the barriers. And that's why I find it really you know, fascinating now is you know, a filmmaker like John Favreau really loves that process. And it really was started by George, where he said, you know, literally we're one department, one art department. And so that's kind of the philosophy that we approach all of our Mandalorian series now with Skeleton Crew, our Obi-Wan, and also you know, um, Ahsoka. And so if you get a chance, please attend my Monday panel, because I'm going to get into a deeper dive in terms of specific designs, talk about our inspiration, talk about our process. Uh, this conversation is really going to be more about for you in terms of you know, any questions that you want to know about general film design. Um, so there's two components of what we do in the art department. And so there's, you know, obviously when we start a project, we start designing for the show, and we're given a very specific timeline, meaning once the film date is set, we know exactly how much time we have to design the show. So that's number one, and that process is set now. And in our shows, it's very tight. It's normally about seven months. Part of that process, too, is that we're also in the early days of getting projects greenlit. And so a lot of times, we'll get filmmakers coming in, and they will have an idea to pitch. We don't have a script, we don't have a story, but they have an idea. And part of our role is to help kickstart that. Basically, design artwork for a pitch package for the studios. And those are really fun because they're complete blue sky work. And that's how we started Skeleton Crew. I mean, that, I don't know if you were here, was it yesterday? When John Favreau was talking about how that project started. Literally, it was that. We heard a pitch and we did 10 pieces of concept art that kind of hit the right tone but weren't design specific showed that to the studio, and they said, yeah, we want to see this movie. And that's how it got greenlit. 
And so that's the other part. So that, you know, we kind of have two separate roles in our art department. And that one is always really fun because there's a lot of interesting films and we don't know if any of these are gonna stick. Um, and so it's really kind of part of that organic process of design. Oops. Um, the actual production part of it, um, it's kind of interesting. So it always starts off with the core Lucasfilm team, which is myself, Ryan Church, Eric Timmons, and Rick Lim, and Christian Alsman. And so we start the early pitch ideas then because we don't have a budget, essentially. So that core group of Lucasfilm always kickstarts it. And that's the process where we start to do the, the concept work in terms of getting inspiration to market up. Once that is approved, once we get a green light, once we get funding, is when I bring people like Jama in and the other sort of dozens of artists worldwide. And we start to build a team, we start to build a schedule. So then it goes into production. Once we go into production, it's literally a race. And we literally have sort of a very specific timeline of where we have, if we don't have a script, we'll, I'll break down the story ideas from a pitch from John Favreau, let's say. And he'll say, you know, these are the plants I want to see. These are the environments I want to see. These are the characters that I have. Don't know how they're going to fit together yet, but let's start designing all these. So I come down with a breakdown of all the stuff. And then literally, we just start chipping away at it. And the way I like to approach design is kind of all the way through. So it's not like, you know, starting from the beginning and then ending at the end. I kind of take it organically and kind of hit all the major key points. And so the strategy for the art department is after the pitch art, which captures the tone, is to really go and figure out, okay, the major key points that we know are going to stick in the story. And that's very specific because we always start the art before we have a script. And it's hard to know if a set or character that we're designing is going to be in the show. And so I always try to you know, rely on instinct and rely on what the filmmakers tell me to say like, okay, at least these four things we know are gonna be in the show. We don't quite know how or how it's gonna be mixed up, but we know that we're gonna have Planet X and, and you know, Character Z. And so that's the process where I started um, you know, working with the team. We start to design that. When that happens, what's beautiful about this process is when a filmmaker like John starts to see these pieces of art, it starts to inform his writing and it actually inspires him and he starts to change and shift a little bit. And then he'll get new ideas and he pitches it back. And so we keep growing. And what's wonderful about this process is that art and writing go hand in hand. It's very organic. One informs the other. And in many ways, I always try to push the envelope to inspire the writing. And you know, in this case, it's, it's always John. So he's writing most of it. But if there's other writers, it's really to kind of inform them. Like, okay, I have an idea for a planet, but then we can kind of show them you know, wow, this is what it could look like. This is what it could be, you know, in terms of a spectacle. And then they get excited and they start to write more scenes for it. And that's what's really fun about what we do is that that process is very organic. So that takes place in the early days of sort of our production art design process. Very quickly, we'll start to get pages or the story starts to get sort of condensed where I know, okay, specifically, these are the characters, these are the sets that we're gonna do. And then we really dive in deep into, okay, Here's the set, here's the story, this is what happens. And the general approach is, <clears throat> excuse me, I always kind of like, let's say if it's a set, I black out and design the whole set because I don't know how it's gonna be shot. And so you have to design the whole thing. And what I mean by that is we design it with set dressing, with textures, with lighting, and we populate it with characters. So all the artwork that you see in the, at the end of our shows were done way early in pre-production, before we had a script but we capture that right moment. And what's great about that is they become these North Star images 
for the filmmakers and the crew. Because John can look at it and say like, yeah, that's the scene I want for this moment. And then he builds the rest of the script and the story to that. So we try to hit all of those ideas. Once that is kind of laid out, we put it into what I call a designscape. And the, the designscape literally tracks in story order all the key designs, costumes, characters, sets, vehicles, everything. So he can start to see in a document what the show will look like. Uh, and then this will go hand in hand, parallel to the writing, so that when we actually get a script, we actually have a document. And you know, the designscape is literally hundreds of images. Right now, on average, our designscapes are about 600 images. And each one tracks to a moment in the story. And so he now has this terrific document that can, you can share to anybody to say, like, this is what our show's gonna be. Once he's happy with that, we literally go in and now get really deep and roll up our sleeves to go into the heavy lifting of, okay, here's the set, kind of knows what this is gonna be, let's figure it out. And that's when the, you know, we start to sort of hone in on all the sets. Like, for instance, you know, if it's uh, like Jabba's Palace or now it's Boba's Palace, we need a bedroom. We have a framework for what that moment is. Now we start to figure out, okay, the blocking and the station, how big should the room be? We start to design it in 2D and 3D. And so we get all that worked out, and then as the as we get further down into the production um, schedule, other department heads come on board. And then that's when we start to disseminate that information to all the various people, whether it's hair and makeup, creature effects, um, production design. Because I always work with a, a co-designer named Andrew Jones, who's terrific at you know taking the ideas and then building upon them and then executing them. And so we kind of really start to expand the group to really realize and figure out what it takes and schedules are built, budgets are, are you know, fabricated, just to really see what that will be. And it's all with the ticking clock of, this is our shoot date. And so as you can see, as the, as the production goes, the overall process becomes quite large. Uh, this is when we actually get down into the stage and we have construction, we have you know, our grips, and we have prop makers. You know, there's a, you know, hundred, literally hundreds of people who now start to take that designscape and dissect it to build into practical physical things that we can actually shoot. Parallel to that, there's a virtual pipeline, which is exactly the same, but taking those same assets, and now we're building it virtually, because, because we're shooting with the LED screen, all that content has to exist simultaneously. And the beauty of the LED is that we have to think ahead so that the sets are always fully realized, you know, physically as well as virtually. And in many ways, the virtual build is more comprehensive than the physical build because the physical build is only a partial set. The digital version is the whole thing. And the reason that has to be is that when we put those digital versions on the screen, it has to marry one-to-one -one with our physical set. It's, it's like seamless. And so there's a lot of, you know, what would be typically pre-production, oh no, I'm sorry, post-production work is now brought up in the pre-production. And that's what makes our you know, job in terms of designers really challenging because we're trying to compress the whole production schedule and put it all in the front end. Because once we go into our shooting schedule, everything goes down. I mean, it's just like, there's a lot of things that we have to solve and there's a lot of changes. Um, that process, those changes continue well into post-production. And so the art department for Lucasfilm exists from the beginning all the way through to production, all the way through to principal photography, all the way through to, um, to VFX. And so it's a complete comprehensive design process. And that typically is about a year and a half on average for all of our shows. And so that's where, you know, you're literally on board before the first word is written, 
all the way to the very end before the final DI where you color correct all the images and it gets out on the screen. So it's a lot of work. But the great thing is that we treat it as a sort of, um, in some ways I always consider like, you know, digital clay. Because we think of, you know, everything that's ingested into the camera is digital data. And with that in mind, we can manipulate that at any point in the process. Granted, there are specific rules and budget concerns in terms of how much you can change things, but it gives the filmmakers this wonderful opportunity to actually fine-tune the whole process so that when we're in post, on a scene, if a character is not working, we will happily take it back and redesign it and then figure out how to execute it. And then with digital visual effects, we can literally modify sets, paint out characters to add in new characters. You know, and obviously there's always a budgetary and schedule you know, component to all of this. But what it allows is that for a filmmaker like John Favreau, who has a really strong vision, he can still fine tune it. And this is something that George started way, way back, you know, back like, like during the Phantom Menace days, um, like over 25 years ago. And the reason he created all this technology for himself was that he was always frustrated that once the film was shot, he couldn't change it. You know, and, and that was a, a complete frustration for him. In Phantom Menace, if you look at it, there are typically 2,000 shots per feature film. Every shot was a visual effects film because every shot was manipulated. I mean, very few people know that, but it's, it's like, it's one of George's processes because he really wanted that organic flow of, okay, treating filmmaking like an oil painting where you're, the paint's never dry. You're constantly manipulating it. So that's kind of in broad strokes what we do in terms of the art department. With that in mind, there, there's many layers of nuance, and I can get into specifics about creature design, vehicle design, or set design. So you tell me what will be you know, most interesting to you. Um, and then I'll also you know, talk a little bit about you know, um, how to break into the business. You know, what I look for, what JAMA may look for, in terms of artists and skill sets. And it's really varied. I mean, I'll give you a real breakdown now, and it doesn't matter to me where you get your training or what experience you have. It's all about your portfolio. And it's, it's very unique in the sense that, for me, um, that's the most important thing. If you have the skills, if you have the ideas, and not necessarily the experience, it's okay. You know, and this is, it's unique in the sense that, you know, I don't really need to see your art degree. It doesn't mean anything to me. Your sketchbook is far more important because I can see how you think, how you visualize, what your ideas are. And that's the main takeaway. Um, there are certain things in the art department where right now there are so many tools, you know, 2D and 3D, and I'll say learn as much as you can because it's a changing landscape. When I started out, we didn't have those tools, so it was all brute force, like literally just you know, pen and paper you know, and markers and paint and, and trying to get these ideas on paper. And if you make a mistake, you literally have to start over or do different iterations. It's a lot easier now, but that sort of efficiency only makes the challenge harder in the sense that filmmakers now want to see a lot of iterations. So even though these tools make our process easier, the expectations go up. And so it's, it's kind of like this endless cycle. So the biggest thing is, if you're starting out in the industry, learn as much as you can and keep learning. I mean, I still learn now, there's new software and tools every year. And if I'm not familiar with it, I'll be left way behind. And the way I look at it is, you're always judged by your last piece. And so you have to be able to kind of keep up. And it's a crazy thing because you would think, you know, like me, I've been in the business for almost 30 years, that I could just relax, you know, I could get my next gig. Absolutely not. I treat every show that I get on, every 
sort of new series with John Favreau as if it was my first. And it's important because you just have to keep learning and keep growing. And so literally, that is the endless process. So if you're interested in a career in film design, that's kind of what you're in store for. But I have to say, it's also very fulfilling because our day-to-day -day is very challenging in the sense that we get to play many different roles, put on many different hats in terms of one day we could be a creature designer, next day we're a costume designer, next day we're a set designer. And that variety makes it really appealing to me because we're building worlds, we're building characters. And then the beauty of all of this is that you know, once we establish all that, we bring in so many others really talented people, other department heads that can take those ideas and plus it up even more. And so it's one of those things where the film industry is unique in that sense is that, you know, it starts off solitary, but then it becomes very collaborative. And that collaboration is throughout. And that's where, you know, when I see people putting on their portfolios like, oh, I designed this and I designed this, and they show the final image, it's like, mm, not really. You may have started the process, but that's not yours. I don't take ownership on anything I've designed because honestly, there's like a dozen people behind the scenes that helped create that. I started that process, you know, and so that's something to keep in mind because one of the, the, the sort of key things to keep in mind is that we're all sort of artists in some ways and we really, you know, for film it's hard. It's in a sense very hard to take ownership of all this, but the, the thing to keep in mind is that um, the big note I would say is for aspiring artists is be careful of your ego. And that's really important because I like to work with people who are talented but don't have egos. In the sense that they don't really, you know, it's, it, our, our jobs are so high stress as it is, you don't need that added layer of frustration, of like trying to, you know, fight through this. If someone's like saying, no, I don't want to change it because I think it's really good. It's like, well, it's not your film. <laughs> you know, we're all here doing a job, so change it. You know, and, and it's, it's a big lesson to learn because I remember when I started out, I was very precious with my work. It was kind of like, okay, I have to be the best in the industry. These are my ideas. I'm selling me. And no, that's absolutely the wrong way. So the approach is that this is a collaboration. You're bringing your best game to the, you know, the, the, or your best assets to the game. And you're really trying to contribute. But other people have great ideas and you build on that. So never, I mean, be very careful of that because I have to say early in my career, I've met some very talented people. I mean, amazing artists, but their egos were just off the chart and I could not work with them. And my approach now is that, you know, I'm very fortunate in that the artists that I work with are all super talented, but they're all super humble and nice. We're all just, you know, good friends. And like Jama here, I mean, Jama, I'm gonna embarrass you for a moment. Jama is one of the most amazingly talented people that I've known. And I've worked with him for, you know, how long has it been, like five years? Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and what's great is that when you bring all of us together in the room, we're all just happy to be there. You know, and we're all friends. There's no competition. There's not, you know, you don't need that. You know, I remember when I first started at ILM, um, the design community was really small. And I felt that, you know, okay, because I was so new to the industry that I had to, like really compete. I had to like, you know, be better than my, my, my friend over here. And I was like, no, you don't have to be. You're a part of one team. And that was a huge revelation for me because I realized I don't have to be the best because I'll never be the best. So why do you even go down that path? Um, and so right now, if you'll find like really successful art departments, and I would have to say the Lucasfilm art department is one of those. Everybody in that group is just amazingly talented, but amazingly humble. 
amazingly collaborative. And there's very little ego. So that will be the, the big takeaway. So I'll say the two things to take away from today, learn your skills, get rid of your ego. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, um, I can get more specific. Those are the, the key highlights. So I'm gonna pick up this microphone, raise your hand, and then we will talk. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Nice, I'm American, y'all can hear me anyway. Um, so I'm a model maker, I'm studying at um, Hertfordshire University. Um, and I was wondering, on a model maker's perspective, we are focused a lot about realism. And I'm wondering how much of that translates into creature design for something like Star Wars, where they're out of this world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, realism is really important because even though we're working in a medium that's all about fantasy fulfillment and spectacle, we want a layer that feels very real. And so part of the design brief is that the designs that we create has to have that reality, that basis in reality. It has to be authentic. Coming from a model building background is terrific because you're realizing it in reality. And even though, you know, I saw a shift in the art department where, you know, I was fortunate enough to start an industry where it was very traditional, then we made the transition to digital, and now we're kind of in this hybrid mode. And I always default in the art department to go back old school, to create sculptures, to create models that we can physically put together and hold. Because so much of it exists digitally, and it's pretty amazing, but you can't replace having something in your hand. And as simple as that is, there, there's something just wonderful about putting a model on the table and walking around it. You know, you could actually do the same thing with a VR goggle, but it's not the same experience. You know, and so we always try to have the best of both worlds. And the designs for everything that we do, whether it's creatures or sets, it has to be grounded in reality. And I think that's particularly important for Star Wars because Star Wars is rooted in that reality. It's not like a fantasy film. And and that that's a kind of a it's a fine line because George really defined Star Wars as an alternate reality. And that's why he said, you know, galaxy far, far away. Um, it looks familiar, but feels very different. And so everything that you do has to have that, well, at least that level of realism and believability. Yep. Hi. Um, uh, I was wondering about ideation, um, your process in terms of do you use like sticky notes and do you bring in people from other departments when you're uh, creating ideas for new vehicles, new designs, new blasters, and um, do you use any digital tools? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> Actually, you want, I'm going to come down there. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. No, you know, one of the fun things about what we do is um, sticky notes are my favorite in terms of design. And it's because I like the four, three by three uh, post it notes because it forces you to kind of think in silhouettes and shapes. And what's really great about those um, post it notes is that it has a medium tone. So you can start drawing with a, like a blue pencil or marker and you can actually start to block in things very quickly. And so going old school like that, I always like to draw, you know, pen and paper first and then. As soon as I can, I, I take it into the digital. And using things like you know, the iPad Pro with the pencil and Procreate, you can actually mimic traditional techniques on that. And it's really great because what's powerful about that is, again, you have the ability to endlessly iterate. You don't have to worry about mistakes. And that's the beauty of this new technology, of you know, new tools, essentially. But very quickly, what I'll do is, you know, once we have an idea, sketched out on a post-it note, I'll scan it in, 
import it into Photoshop, and then either start modeling it in 3D using Moto. That's the only thing I know right now. I'm learning Blender. But then you, you start to sort of realize it. And the way I use the tools is basically just enough to get me to the point where it starts to be informative in terms of design, but I'm never going to be good enough where I can model something really, really well. I leave that to JAMA. <laughs> no, but the point is that you know, I get it to a point where I can make it work, and then I scan it into Photoshop, and then I start digitally painting it. Uh, so my process is a little bit of a mix and match where some of the other artists in the, on the team are so good at doing at both, you know, where they're so good at doing um, traditional 2D drawings, but then they can actually build it in 3D to such a high fidelity that you can actually render it and texture it, and you get an image that's about 90% of the way there, if not 100%, and then they come in, and then they you know, paint it up, add characters and stuff. I'm never there. I usually, my process is about 30% I can get there in terms of that. But you know, what's really wonderful is that everybody has their own workflow. Everybody has a separate tool. So there's no mandate in terms of what 3D package you should wear, you should use, what 2D package, as long as you can draw. That's the main thing. You know, draw and have good ideas. Let me get this one real quick. Hi, yeah, uh, another model designer. Um, so you, we're saying about like how um, new technology is coming out all the time, and it's you know very much like you know all is technology. But do you feel like sculpting and like puppeteering is that? Do you feel like that's being sort of taken out of Star Wars, or do you feel like it's still very relevant? No, it's completely uh, relevant because what we're doing is, even though we may not be physically sculpting in clay, we're doing it digitally. And I'm going to pass it to Jama because Jama's terrific at digital sculpting. And maybe you want to speak to how, your process. Is this working? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get embarrassed again. Uh, no, I think it's still relevant. And you know, as Doug mentioned, as long as you have strong foundations, you know, like you know how to sketch, draw, and do stuff from clay, it doesn't matter. The technology comes and evolves. Like, I don't know, five years ago it was all about VR, you know, people were saying, oh, it's gonna never happen, but anyway, I still love that, you, you know, you can sculpt actually in VR and make creatures and then pass it on, for example, to Doug and he could put the goggles on and see it in real life, but still, I think it's, the foundation is what's important, you know, and I don't think it's going anywhere, you know, now AI is coming, it's terrifying for all students, even for myself, right, like, it's like, oh my god. I, but again, like there's always it comes down to fundamental knowledge because that's how you tell the stories, you know. And stories are universal, so you just use the tools, and the new tools will replace the old ones. But you build them on top of a strong foundation. I guess that's the main part. Yeah. I'll work my way back there. Do you use do you use three D print to uh, to uh, um, after after your your three D sculpt? Do you use three D printing? To, uh, to have to model in, in life. Is it a question to me? Yeah. Oh, wait, I did. I did that on Jurassic World. Before Lucasfilm, I was at ILM, so we used to do like little dinosaurs. And I think Doug mentioned in his previous previous panel here, and like it's so nice when you actually take your 3D design and print it out and play with it. Unfortunately, they never leave it to us. It gets taken away by directors, but it's so much fun, you know. And I, again, I'm so lucky that like sometimes I. Couldn't even believe that they pay for this because you sit there and you stitch the dinosaur together. <laughs> and you know, like back when I started 3D printing, it wasn't the, the resin printers, it was the filament ones. And you know, when you screw it up, you end up with like what I call a sausage bowl, you know, where you, <laughs> a, a, a noodle bowl, you know, with a lot of like stuff. And you start over, 
Yeah, and we start over, and they pay for it. It was like, oh my god, this is the best job ever. <laughs> but again, it, it is quite stressful. Doug mentioned a little bit of that, like, you know, obviously, like, when I work with Doug, he expects me to produce something. But obviously, on my front, I'm dealing with almost, like, if it was just pen and paper, it's still very difficult, but it's simple as a tool. But when it gets, like, 3D and printed, it gets so technical. Like, I can't tell Doug, like, hey, Doug, I have a noodle soup in my printer, right? I have to produce something, and it's so stressful. But again, I meant to say this anyway, even if it wasn't part of your question. Working with Doug is so good because he knows how to motivate, like, specifically me. I don't know about anyone else. Like, often I would send, because of the, the lineup of technological stuff that I have to deal with, right? I send my stuff over, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like, he's going to destroy it, right? And then he comes back, obviously he's very objective, if it's bad, he would say that, but he manages to kind of motivate and put the emphasis where it would, like what I should do to take my bad stuff and make it good, and that's why I've been with Lucasfilm for five years and I'm not looking for any other job. Yes. Uh, unless AI kind of uh, yeah, makes me relevant, so let's see how that goes. Oh, thanks, John. Yeah, I'm going to go back here. Okay. Colin from Germany. Um, you made the transition from analog to silicon graphics to digital, and now we are um, at the edge of artificial intelligence, as you just said, like with mid journey and stuff. What do you think? How will design change with these tools that everybody has access to? Yeah, phenomenal tools like uh, DALI or mid journey. Now that's a, a, a huge question in the bay right now, and we're all hypersensitive to it because. Obviously, AI art is pretty powerful. I mean, there's some amazing, stunning images. The way I look at it is really, it's just a useful reference tool. I think of it as like a great collage tool to get ideas, get fresh things. But I would never use it purely as that because I don't consider it an art. Art, for me, needs a human person behind it. This is all just generated images, just a, a real sophisticated version of collaging. The images you get out of it are terrific. I mean, I have to admit, there's some things that are just like, wow, I wish I could have thought of that. The beauty though is that you take that nugget and then you use it for yourself. And so I use it as literally like photoclass. In the old days when we would cut out magazine images to kind of get ideas. And you find something that you may not have thought about, but then you convert it and you put it through your brain and through your hands to create something that's uniquely you and, and you know and that's worthy of artwork. So that's where I see it going, at least for myself. I don't know where it's going to evolve because it is a really tricky, slippery slope in terms of where that goes, and I've seen so much of that now. Uh, I have to say, there's a, a look to it that is very obvious, and I can spot it. And so that's the thing to be careful of, is that you can't rely on that. As a tool to generate potential ideas, lighting schemes, I think it's, I mean, you can't deny it. You have to embrace technology. Firstly, it's an absolute dream come true to meet you. I've come all the way from Australia, so it's fantastic to see you in flesh. Um, I just have a quick question about um, what would you say to somebody who has you know, gone to sort of done art college, has a lot of stuff behind their portfolio and stuff like that, um, in terms of like kind of getting within the industry, in terms of getting connections and stuff like that in um, you know, such a faraway place such as Australia and stuff like that? I was wondering if you could speak to that. No, actually, I mean, you know, that's the great thing about today is that um, it doesn't matter where you live, it really doesn't. Because you know, if you look at the Lucasfilm team, there's people worldwide. I mean, like you know, Jama, you know, for the, you know, he lives here, and I can work with people like that. And and so the the real takeaway is, you know, today I believe it's a lot easier. 
The competition is a lot stiffer because you can have visibility to other people, other styles, other artists online now. But the great thing about that is you can actually see where your skills are. And you have to be really honest with yourself because everything's out there. And all of us, in terms of who, as we're working in the industry, whether it's film design or game design, we look at all that. We look at all the portfolios, even if they don't submit it because we're looking for talent all the time. And so as an artist, you can go out there and just look at everybody's work and see where your work lines up with that and where you might need improvement. And so it's really good in the sense that you know you now have visibility into that process. Whereas before, when I started, you really didn't. You were coming in blind. You didn't know what your shortcomings were. You didn't know what you had to approve, uh, improve. And so now I would say, when you do that, don't fool yourself. I mean, be really brutally honest and say like, oh, you know what? I wish I could do more spaceships, but oh man, these five guys are killing it. How do I up my game? And that's where you can then start to sort of self-improve yourself. And there's so much out there in terms of either tutorials, modeling things. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot. There's almost too much. Um, and I think with each of the films that are out there, the films, you know, in terms of the art of books, you're also seen at the level of the people who are in the industry. And I'll say, you know, for the Lucasfilm team, you have a good visibility in terms of what the skill set is. You look at the artwork at the end of The Mandalorian, and then you have to say, okay, is that something that you want to do and can do? You know, because that's kind of the, where the bar is. Having said that, though, there's always room to move up. And so one of the great things about where we are is that, you know, it literally, it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to be living anywhere close to the industry. It all comes down to having a rock solid portfolio and, you know, really building your skills. So anyways, I'm gonna come back to you real quick. On a similar vein, um, I have a background in engineering. I don't have an artistic uh, background, so I have no like, qualification or skills in that sort of uh, industry or, or uh, I um, so what sort of things are you looking for in people's portfolios? Is it specifically artistic skill or are there any other other like design skills that you're looking for? Or, and also as well as that, um, sort of tips on career prospects or how to get from literally nothing to where you are today, basically. <laughs> no, that's a really good question because um, it doesn't matter you know, what industry you're coming from. So let's say if you're coming from engineering, if you're really good at, let's say, um, designing machinery, you know, whatever it is, um, that's all I need to see. And, and the thing that you should really consider is, you know, what focus in terms of what is the specific discipline that you want to go into. Something like, let's say, if I just heard that in terms of, you know, what you want to do, I would say that's a great opportunity to become a 3D modeler to build our hero assets, our spaceships, our vehicles, you know, our, 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 our sets, because those are the foundation skills that we need. But if you want to aspire to be actually, you know, doing other things, then you would have to have that in your portfolio. The great thing is that in your portfolio, you have to demonstrate that you can do what you, you know, profess that your background is, but then show your other potential. And that could be, I don't know, maybe like creature design if you want. That's part of engineering. And what I find really fascinating about that is if you can actually demonstrate something that's completely different. So let's say engineering is all hard surface, but if you are actually you know, kind of proficient at creature organic things, that's a great hybrid because that's a unique skill set. And the two actually complement each other. You can actually create some really stunning designs. One, the mechanical stuff can inform the creature design, and the organic stuff can inform the, the hard surface designs. So it all comes down to you know what is your specific area of interest. Get the best portfolio together that can really highlight that, but then show your other range of skills. So to get into the industry right now, 
it is really, for me anyways, it's all about your portfolio. It, it literally is, and everybody has it online, and it could be anything, but if you demonstrate in your portfolio a certain passion or a certain skill set that's unique, that can actually complement the team, that's all it takes. And then getting in the business is a little tricky because you know sometimes we're at such a high pace in terms of our schedules that it's hard to bring in somebody new because they're not up to speed. But there are opportunities where we can take somebody and say, you know, I'll throw them some ideas and say, you know, just try this and see where, where you can go with it. And you'll learn very quickly if somebody can kind of, you know, perform at the level that we need. Um, and it's really hard. I, I've had to turn away some really seasoned industry people because they just couldn't keep up to the schedule. And it's not a reflection on them, it's just the nature of the work. The schedules are so intense that we always have to be like rushing and running to the end. And the great thing is like, you know, somebody like Jono, who has abilities in 2D and 3D, but can work at such a high fidelity level of finished work, that it just creates, you know, designs that, that can really help shorten that process quite a bit. Because a lot of what we do, it's not that glamorous, it's all about efficiency. I mean, we're trying to create as much, you know, creative, beautiful imagery as possible, but it is a job, it's an industry. And that's the sad part of it, is that, you know, we never have enough time to do what we want to do. Hey, Doug, it's an honor to meet you, and also Go Bruins. Uh, I am a writer, and I'm working in genres where I think it would be helpful for me to work with a concept artist, concept designer. So you were talking about that relationship earlier, and I'm wondering for you, what is most helpful to get from a writer in terms of a spec or a brief? Yeah, you know, as far as writing, um, really just ideas. I mean, we don't need, like, descriptions. And in fact, if anything, it's more about, you know, what is your real intent? What is this character? What is the personality? I don't need, like, you know, this character should have red hair and be five foot tall or whatever. That stuff, I'll figure out. And so when you're working with a, an artist, it's really about the, you're thinking about the broader concept of the story and the character archetypes. Um, the design part of it, the, you know, the color and lighting and texture and stuff, you know, lead to your artist. And so there's really, you know, I will say less is more in that world. Just kind of get to the core essence of what's important to you as you're writing in your story. Hey, so it's an honor and a pleasure to meet you. Um, my question for you is, you have quite a resume with Star Wars. I'm a big fan of the prequels, and I always wanted to ask you, what was the most challenging piece of art that you had to work on for the prequels? What was the most fun? Uh, everything about it. No, honestly, the prequels, um, I didn't enjoy the process when I started because I was so stressed out. <laughs> Literally, it was three years of just like trying to, you know, to see if I could actually keep up to, with Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston. And in, honestly, in hindsight, I, I should have like really sit back and kind of enjoyed the moment. But literally, when you're given an opportunity like that, I mean, for me at least, my brain kind of went into hyper mode where it was like, okay, I just cannot let George Lucas down. I cannot let him fire me <laughs> my first week. And literally, I would just set you know, a goal. And, and part of my process in terms of design is, and everybody has their own process, I like to brute force it through, you know, and obviously as you're working on designs, you'll get a lot of moments where you'll hit a mental block and then you just can't. And so my strategy back then was I literally, no one told me to do this. I mean, no one set the hours for me. I set it myself. So I set it from 8 o'clock to 8 o'clock, 12 hour days, standard. Even though the standard in the industry back then was about 40 hours, it's now way beyond that. 
But that was kind of my core. And then I also said, okay, I'm not going home until I create you know, my, my six images today, six finished pieces of art so I can have 25 to show George at the end of the week. That was my goal. And the reason I did that was because you don't want to get too precious with what you do. And when you're focused on something, trying to make it great, you'll labor it and just like work it to death. And so part of the thing of having a certain number in my mind was that it gave me the opportunity or forced me to just get all bad ideas out. So by the end of the day, five of them could be complete shit. But then on the next day, I'll have something that's worthy of it. And then I can kind of go back and, and fine tune it. And so that's part of the, the creative process for me. And, and I'll ask Jama what his process is in a minute. But for me, it's really about just pushing so you can literally get all your bad ideas out because at some point, the good ideas will be there. And it's a small fraction of the work that you're doing. If you're starting your process trying to make that first idea great, you'll never get anywhere because you'll just at least beat that one to death. Here, Ninjama. Oh, well, I, I guess my, my process is very similar. It's stressful, right? So, especially when you, I can tell you how I started with that. This is like really, uh, this was really stressful. So basically, I was at ILM and I meant to leave because I thought I'm not good enough. I was like, I'm going to leave ILM. And I'm gonna learn new things. The moment I leave, like week later, I get Doug's team getting in touch with me. Hey, do you want to work with us? I was like, of course. And I completely forgot about my sabbatical, so I decided to do that. But I told them I'm going back to my country. I'm originally from Tajikistan, uh, and I uh, and once I come back, then we can reconnect. And somehow we lost the something was lost in translation. I go to Tajikistan, and they and we arrange a first call with Lucasfilm team and if you don't know about Tajikistan, it's a small country, there's like very bad internet. <laughs> and they sent me like a, 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 an email, 10 kilobytes, I couldn't open it. And imagine the stress is building up. It's just, I'm meeting my best kind of the dream job that I meant to do and I, I have to tell them, hey guys, I don't have internet, can you call me? So they failed to call me for some reason and then I called them. And I just started talking with Doug, hey Doug, like, good, to, good to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then this lady in the local language tells me you don't have enough money to, to continue this song. <laughs> so I hang up after a minute, after this chain of excuses, and I was like, oh my god, they're going to fire you without even like starting a new job. And, but basically I got it in there, but it was very stressful again. But then it's about finding a balance and also understand, like Doug mentioned, that you're working in a team of people. Like, I per personally, I have a t my artistic take on some things, but I do understand whatever I do needs to be used later on in the production and for the storytelling. So uh, once you tackle it from this angle, it's so much easier because, like, when Doug tells me, like, hey, we want to make it look epic, and then I, from my experience working with him before, knowing the Star Wars universe, I kind of know where to go. And it's still stressful, Doug, I'll tell you, but uh, it's a piece like we did so many things together and I just trust Doug whenever he goes like, hey, we try this and that and this. And as I mentioned, he's very good at uh, dealing with those kind of things. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a stressful, but it's a good, it's like going to gym, no stress, no gain, right? So, yeah. Um, Jana mentioned earlier that you're an amazing motivator. Uh, just talking about your management style now you're in that position what do you think is a successful managing style for a creative team and did working your way up at lucasfilm influence that yeah no you know absolutely and, and part of my style is that i'm always uh trying to get supported as possible because in my early career i got so many harsh criticism like you know you're creating crap you're not doing this and that's not a good motivator so i go the other way 
I always encourage everybody. So I always start, and Jama can test this. You know, all my feedback, I always say, great piece of art, but. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of, it helps because I always put it in the, in the frame of mind, like, okay, what kind of feedback would I want to hear? That's not going to completely demoralize me, but yet gives me constructive, you know, sort of techniques and, and ways to move forward. And it's really important because you will work with various people, various department heads, and some are brilliant, and some can absolutely crush you in terms of what they say. And you know, it, for me, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to be. And I've gravitated to filmmakers like John Favreau and his team, and they're like that as well. And the other person is like Robert Zemeckis. So the reason my whole career has been built around John Favreau, Robert Zemeckis, and George Lucas is because they're supportive of artists and designers. So they're sensitive to that. There are a lot of other filmmakers out there who will just be absolutely ruthless. And they're great to work with if you can you know, have the, so the, the ability to kind of you know, do that. I don't want to create that environment. And for me, it's really important that everybody gets along. And that's why the key thing for me is, as hard as it's going to sound, personality first, talent second. And the reason being, I can work with very good people to get their skills up. But if you have a really strong talent, but they're horrible people, it will absolutely destroy the department. And, and you never want to go there. So that's my sort of my two go-to is that I always look for personality because we spend so much time working together that you have to motivate each other. And so a lot of what I do now is a lot of management. And it's hard because you know I, I see some great work and so I kind of you know create art vicariously through them. <laughs> and I still try to find time to create art, but I just don't have enough time. And plus, you know, honestly, my job is so good, it's like I can never compete anyways. <laughs> Can I add on top of that very quickly? Uh, so when we were uh, working on the Mandalorian first season, after the fail with the phones and all that stuff, so I was doing pretty well, and so we got to design this dry month planet, and obviously that was saying like, hey, let's create something epic, so I did this like, uh, the dry mud planet, and every flake was so big, and that, that came back to me, because like, oh, uh, John Power thinks it's too epic, and I was like, what, what do you mean too epic? It was so epic, right? But then again, it's it's basically on both ends, Doug is obviously really good motivating, but also he's very good at uh, formulating his needs, you know, like, you can say like abstract stuff, but he's very good at saying, hey, like, it looks epic, but when we shoot the characters, because the rocks are behind them are so big, it would be just a blank screen, you know? So we wanted to squeeze down the scale, so eventually the show, when the man that walks through the like, mud planet, you can see the, the background, and obviously on my end, I have to translate that into images. So on one end, that's, that does a very uh, good job on formulating what you need, and I need to kind of be able to read it, so, and then it works perfectly. Um, so, uh, you talked a little bit about schedules being very fast-paced. I wanted to ask about habits. Like, what kind of habits would support with these schedules um, having the energy to support personalities working together in collaboration? Yeah, I mean, there's two components to that. I mean, one, your personal habits, and then one, sort of, your studio work habits. And they're very different. So, my personal habit is you always try to get into a routine. and. And because our schedules are so tight, I mean, my strategy is actually be very specific. So I always come down, and as silly as it sounds, a to-do list, breaking down my day. And I always start really early because I just kind of, you know, I feel like, you know, I need to. The other part of the reason I have to do sort of early days is that, you know, the artists that I work with are worldwide. So they're either up or waiting for notes. And I don't want to hold them up in any ways. So my day typically starts at 6 o'clock every day. 
And then it ends, you know, literally at six o'clock at night is when I get the rest of the um, dailies. And that's when the second half of my day starts. And I give notes all the way through to about 10 o'clock. That's every day, including weekends. It's not normal. It's, it's because that, you know, for the Mandalorian series, we're doing four shows, you know, at the same time. You know, if you think about it, in the past four years, we've done eight series. And each series is the equivalent of two and a half feature films worth of content. So you can just kind of do the math. You can see, like, that's an insane amount of work. And I feel like I have to do my part because I don't want to hold up any of the other artists because they're doing their best to keep it up. And so from a personal point of view, the schedule, I set that routine because that's the only way I can function. Because otherwise, by the end of the day, I'll just have a meltdown because I just don't, you know, it'll be too overwhelming. The other habit that you have to have is that when you're working on a crew, uh, on a film production, is to know that everybody has their heart in the project. I mean, if it's a good crew, that's a given. And so you never want to belittle everybody. If they're not performing well, you don't want to go up there and say, like, oh, you didn't paint that right, can you try this or that? Absolutely not. They're giving it their all. And you have to find a way to kind of like, in your habit, to like help nurture that. And it's really hard. Sometimes in the stress of the day, when you're ready to get it on camera and things aren't quite looking right, you have to find a way to make that work. But it's a really sort of a collaborative uh, process where when I'm on the set, uh, I put on a different hat than when I am doing my own stuff. Because I'll be my worst critic, and I'll just you know criticize myself to death. But I don't want to do that to anybody else because I know how heartbreaking that is. And then you compound that. You don't want to do it to a stranger on the set who's coming on this, and they may have just as much passion as you, and you don't understand that. But because the pressure's there, you can't take it out on them. And so it's a really tricky thing where a healthy film crew is very collaborative in that sense. Everybody's really respectful. That is not always the case. There are crews that are just really hard to work with because of different personalities. Hopefully, we move on <laughs> so they never work with us again. And so through the sheer process of attrition, you actually hone down the team to something that's super efficient. And I've done that with the Lucasfilm Art Department. I mean, I would have to say, the, the dozen guys and women that I work with are the best. I mean, I'll go back for them no matter what. Cause just because we've gone through that whole process and we've kind of learned through that process. Same thing with our LA crew. I mean, it's really great. And so it's one of those things where you try to capture that, um, that moment and try to preserve it as much as possible because filmmaking by itself is so hard. What we do, a lot of it is crap. <laughs> I mean, crap meaning hard, uh, just because it's not that fulfilling and you have to find some way to sort of get through it all. And for me, it's really finding you know, great collaborators, great friends. So let me go back here. Hey, um, I'm a writer-director, and one day I would love to start this project. Um, I was wondering what, in your opinion, makes a really good sort of writer-director creator to work with collaboratively on this process, and what qualities and skills would you say to you know, cultivate so when you get to that point, you're a lovely person to work with, hopefully? No, that's a really interesting question, and, and the, the simple answer is that don't be a know-it-all. You won't have all the answers, and trust your crew, because that's why they're there. It's like, I trust Jama implicitly, and so when I ask him to do something, I know that he's going to bring back something that's even better. And like, John Farrell is the showrunner, so he runs, you know, he basically runs the shows aesthetically and, and sort of creatively in terms of um, storytelling, because he's writing a lot of that, but he also trusts me. He won't go in there and say like, oh, Doug, you know, make this blue and change this and that and that. He leaves that to me because he knows that I'll bring my best to the game. And likewise, with the other department heads, you know, director of stuff, 
he'll carry to a certain point. So your job as a writer-director on shows is really to nurture and encourage. It's never to come in there and say like, oh, you know, you're doing it wrong, I'll show you how to do it. You know, because filmmaking is unique in that sense that it is a, so collaborative. And I know I'm sounding very cliche in that, but it is absolutely true is that everybody works with the same goal. Our goal is what's on the screen. It's not taking credit for any little piece of it, it's what's on the screen. That's the bottom line. And so everybody has that same passion. Let me go back here. Hi Doug, um, I'm an animator, and um, I'm just wondering like, how much or if little your team works with like any animators when it comes to creature design, because obviously like designing a creature very much affects how it's going to move. Uh, definitely. I mean, animation and movement is a critical component, so we're not animators. I mean, I come from a stop-motion background, so when we design creatures, we always try to see, okay, once the design is aesthetically approved, how do we then carry it to the next level so that it comes to life? What is the performance? And we work with, you know, um, really seasoned animation supervisors, where they actually take the design and are very respectful to it, but then they say, you know, well, maybe this, you know, limb is a little bit too long. Can you change it just a little bit? to still keep the essence of design, but it'll make the animation a lot easier. And that happens at all levels. And not, not only in digital animation, but even like um, physical props. Like, you know, I work with the legacy team. And so we'll design a character, pass it over to them, and then they have to make a real puppet out of it. And in that process, there's an organic thing where it evolves. And sometimes it gets a lot better. It's things that I can't be, they're bringing their expertise to it. And so that's where, you know, for us, that's what I say, you know, when we, Finish up design is never really finished because it's passed over to the next department. We help guide that process, but everybody starts to put in their input um, to, to get the final thing. And that you know applies not even to animation. It's even like spaceship designs. You know, how does it move? You know, how does it land? Does it land funny? It may look really cool in a still, but if it animates really kind of funky, then it doesn't work. Hi Doug, such an honor to be here and meet you. Uh, thanks again for taking pictures with us yesterday as well. Um, question of, you've mentioned you're super hard on yourself with critiquing your own work. How do you overcome, what advice, practical tips do you have for imposter syndrome? And the second part of that is, how do you continue to represent the Asian community? You've been doing so awesome with interviews, and I know that's a big part of who you are. So I wonder if you have any other practical tips to help others uh, role model like that, just like you do. Yeah, no, the uh, imposter syndrome. I mean, I think many of us, I would say, probably suffer from that. I'm one of them, and it's never going away. <laughs> no, and, and the crazy thing is that um, I think it's a healthy thing in some ways because it kind of forces you to question yourself and always try to self-improve because you never want to get comfortable. That's the main thing is that in this job, in this process, I'm always trying to learn because I could easily, like I said before, I could just like cruise now. It's like, okay, I have this resume, I have all this, you can hire me, I don't have to you know, try extra hard. And you don't want to do that. You always have to have that little bit of insecurity because it'll push you that extra bit. And the reason it works for me is that it pushes me to like constantly learn, like, you know, okay, I have to do a sketch today because I haven't done one in a month. And you get it's like, can I still do it? You know, and, and so it's really healthy in some ways. It's a sickness in some ways as well, because as artists, you can drive yourself absolutely crazy where you can never trust your skills. Uh, so you have to have balance in, in terms of that. And I don't know what the, your personal strategies are in terms of finding that balance. Um, for me, 
The reason I love attending these is really for you guys, because what I do behind the scenes is not appreciated in the film industry. It's only when I come here and I see you guys kind of know and understand the work that we do that I, I really get a thrill out of it. And I want to give back and like, you know, help you guys as much as possible. Because, you know, as cool as my job may sound, it's not that much in Hollywood. It really isn't. You know, everybody cares about the stars and the directors. They don't care about artists and designers. Only you guys do, so thank you. <laughs> So, uh, the question in this space is a prop maker and getting around things like NDAs. Um, I've had experience building portfolio uh, and then go for jobs and then sort of, yeah, yeah, great, we'll, um, we'll get you in and sometimes you don't get that opportunity. But having that thing that you've made that in your portfolio also shows that you, you can do that thing, that, you know, make that, that prop. My question then is, getting around uh, the NDAs and actually justifying that you're able to do the thing you say you can do without actually having the proof <coughs> of it. Um, have you got any sort of tips to get on that? Because yeah, I found it to be quite restricting for my career. Yeah, that's a hard one because we are work for hire, they own the art, and so it's really hard unless you get permission. And the only strategy is to kind of create your own version of it or your own art that you can have, that you have ownership and that you can share. Um, it's really tricky because a lot of us, I mean, for the longest time, I couldn't share anything in my career. You know, all of our films are super confidential. Um, and so you literally have like, you know, five years worth of stuff that you cannot show anybody. And it's just the nature of the business. I mean, it's kind of, you know, in, within the group, we all kind of know. But then that's why I find it very important to work on your own personal work, whether it's to self-improve or just have another thing, another creative outlet. And it's super important because then that can become your other showcase. You can have your you know, professional jobs, and maybe if you're lucky, you'll get an NDA you know, release that you can show it. But I wouldn't count on that. And, and, and if you're creative enough, don't ever rely on one thing. You know, and that's the, the critical thing is that of all the artists that I see in their portfolio, they have many, many different things. And maybe half of that can't be revealed, but the other half is just as strong. And so I would say just keep going with that because at the end, your portfolio should be constantly growing. Every year should be a new portfolio. You don't want to just sit on it because you'll get dated so fast. And so you don't want to create this one giant great piece and say, like, this is me, you know, and then just rest. You don't want to do that. Get into a habit of just constantly learning and growing and constantly. Because I think that's the one key takeaway is that everybody in the art department right now is constantly about growth and learning. And it's a process, I mean, I'm 61 years old and I'm still like feeling like I have to learn every day. And it's getting hard because there's some super talents out there. <laughs> I think we have a couple more minutes. Are we done? Oh, I think we're, we're done.